0: Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 26, Carl is Addicted to Creativity, recorded on December 15th, 2014. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. So Mom and I are actually currently podcasting from the same house. I'm on the first floor. She's on the second floor because I'm here for a visit.
1: Yes, and actually, I thought people might be interested to know How you prepare when you're traveling to
0: keep your blog going and to keep on creating? Well, the answer is sometimes I'm more prepared than other times. This time I was prepared enough that I actually had pre-scheduled some posts for while I'm away so I don't have to worry about it while I'm here. Although I do always travel with my laptop so I can do stuff like this podcast or answer questions or whatever else needs, but mostly I have been carving stamps while I've been here at mom's house. And I think I've maybe even tricked her into getting excited about carving some stamps. Didn't you say that to me this morning that you were, kind I might of... try if you won't be judgmental. <laughs> Well, Mom, if I'm judgmental, isn't that really your fault since you raised me and taught me to be certain ways?
1: This is going to get very
0: circular and (laughs) ugly very quickly. Anyway, so if you're not aware, I am doing a project right now called Carve December and I've got lots of fun folks online who are involved too. And we're carving a stamp a day in December. And even if you only carve one stamp in December, uh, I think it's kind of fun to play along and you can see the amazing things that people are doing under the hashtag Carve December, all one word. So check it out if you get a chance. And I will certainly link to it on the podcast page. But in the meantime, I want to talk about our fantastic guest today. So our guest today is Carl. And Carl, I, I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name before, but I'm just going to butcher it and you'll correct it. Is it Johengen?
2: It's actually Johengen. Johengen. Hengen, Joe Hengen. badly I, misspelled German. So. I
0: totally butchered yep. it. Okay, Johengen. Oh, no. There
2: I, you go. That's what I get most of the time. Uh, It it certainly does look German. And so lots of folks, you know, assume it ought to be pronounced like it's German or or Norwegian or something. But uh, yeah, I tell I tell everybody that uh, when I make it big, my record label is going to be called Rhymes with Engine. (laughs)
0: There you go. Okay, so Carl, by the way, is a so many things. He's a singer, he's a composer, a conductor, a voice teacher, a collage and mixed media artist, and a crocheter. And throughout his 27 year career as a classical musician, he's always managed to find time for making things or for teaching others how to channel their creative energies. And even within the field of music, his diverse skills have found outlet in a wide variety of venues from singing opera and all sorts of classical music to playing the piano, the organ, the accordion, the penny whistle. He leads choirs of all sorts. Um, He's a teacher. He has performed as a tenor soloist with symphony orchestras and opera companies, appearing at venues such as Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. Very fancy and impressive. And um, at times, he has thrown himself into working with teaching and writing about polymer clay, crocheting, and several forms of paper arts. And his current passions, he says, are acrylic monoprinting and mixed media collage. And he currently teaches voice and foreign language dictation, which I'm, or I guess, which I'm super curious about at the Ithaca College School of Music. So
2: welcome, Carl. Well, thank you very much, Julie. I'm so delighted to be asked.
0: Absolutely. Well, I got an email from Carl, and um, it had some beautiful pictures of art that he had done, and I was feeling really inspired. And then I I went to the website that you had linked, obviously, in your email and saw your amazing musical credits and listened to some of your music, and I thought, this is one creative guy, and I got to talk to him. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, hopefully I'll be creative in the next uh, few minutes, so I will not disappoint.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you got interested in music, first of all.
2: Well, I grew up in kind of a musical household. Um, my dad was an amateur musician and uh, played the piano in... Uh, in uh, he was a lounge pianist, I like to say. Um, and I always sort of... Uh, wish that I inherited that gene because I love, uh, you know, jazz and I love, but I, it's not something that comes to me naturally. I am much more at home in classical music, but, um, but anyway, there was always music in the house. So I started piano when I was six years old from the same grumpy old man that had taught my father when he was young. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That it, uh, luckily he didn't do me any damage. He was grumpy, (laughs) but, but didn't squelch my interest and love of music. Um, And uh, and then before long, I started playing the oboe in school. You know, I played in the school band and all of that stuff. And um, sang in church, uh, just was always really, really interested in music and in performing. And uh, so, you know, by the time I was in high school and thinking about a career, it it, it didn't really seem like I, I had... Uh, to work very hard to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I naturally just really wanted to go into music So uh, and I've been really fortunate. I've been able to make a living as a musician You know pretty much right from from getting out of school So lucky me
0: that's amazing and and how did you narrow it down to I guess your specialty is really voice these days
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I my uh, my undergrad uh, life I, I thought I wanted to be a symphony oboe player And, um, here's, here's an interesting link to the whole creativity or to the whole handwork thing, because, uh, a a really good oboist learns how to make, uh, his own reeds. The, the, the part of the oboe that you blow into is, is handmade out of two pieces of bamboo cane and, uh, you know, scraped and shaped so that it makes the perfect sound. And, uh, the average uh, oboe player, bassoon player makes probably ten or twenty reeds um, every week or two, wow. and maybe two of them will actually give them the sound thereafter. So uh, it's 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 not the most efficient thing. It, it's quite a rigorous uh, discipline, and I really loved playing the oboe, and I was I think I was pretty good at it, but making reeds was the most annoying thing on earth because I'm impatient and because uh, I have a very hard time giving up on something I if I if I'm gonna put time into making it I want it to work uh and that that problem still plagues me I have a very hard time uh putting aside something that uh uh that I that is you know a work in progress that I'm not happy with uh I, I really want it to be right so I have a very hard time throwing anything away or, or, uh, you know, I just want to, want to turn it into something that'll actually work. So, uh, so my oboe career was kind of doomed, I think, because of the whole reed making thing, but, uh, still was, you know, loving being a musician. And I sang a bit when I was in college and got some encouragement and, uh, decided to turn my, my energies in that direction. And before long, I had a master's degree in voice and choral conducting and I've been working as a singer and a choral conductor ever since, and a voice teacher. So, so yeah, I sort of underwent a conversion when I was in college.
0: Let me ask a music ignoramus question, which is, I assume that the reason that you make your own reeds is because a manufactured reed has a different sound of some kind, even though it would be the same, we assume, every single time.
2: Right, right. It-
0: I assume this is kind of like with violin players, how they believe like Stradivarius or like the handmade violin sound... Different mm-hmm. than the manufactured ones.
2: Sure, yeah, yeah. There's only so much they can do to manufacture a reed that's going to be perfect for you. So I really sort of each oboist or bassoonist or even clarinetist and saxophonist. Some of them will customize their reeds to get the sound that they want. Uh, they can be manufactured, but they they're they're always going to require um, you know some customization. Now
0: this is so, interesting, and, and
2: they're they're expensive too. My gosh, it's, are they really? It's a lot lot less expensive to make it yourself so
0: which is not true of so much craft these days like you know it used to be that you made clothes because it was cheaper and now it's so much cheaper
2: oh right to go out and buy them absolutely well nobody's nobody's mass producing oboe reeds and bassoon reeds in that kind of quantity to make them (laughs) affordable so
0: well you know it's interesting because i think that um one of those things about like having it fit you, cause I know you used to do polymer clay. And my understanding is also that a lot of polymer clay artists sort of adjust their tools as well. They sort of customize things to really fit the way that they work with the clay.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, you know, I, I think that's the story of adulthood in a way It's sort of knowing yourself and well enough that you can customize anything that you might come across. You know, I, I spent uh, a bunch of time, uh, earlier in my life, trying to find the perfect way to run my day, you know, the perfect sort of calendar thing. And, and, uh, you know, I, for a long time, i printed out something off the computer so that I could have a pencil calendar that, that would have everything exactly right for me. You know, I think we do so much of that kind of thing with our, with our, with our lives. We, we find, Uh, products we prefer, we find, uh, you know, places that we would much rather go shopping or or get gas or whatever. And um, I I think it's one of the ways we shape our own identities is by sort of customizing those kinds of aspects of our lives. I wonder,
0: uh, is that a modern idea? I mean, I guess my question is, like, we really don't like one-size-fits-all kind of solutions these days, and people are really after, like, everything is custom me. And I wonder if, is that a new idea? Or has it sort of always been that way? I think it
2: certainly exploded in in you know the past twenty years. Probably, I think, yeah. Oh, it, of course, I think there was a time when you know whatever was available was perfectly fine for everybody, and uh, uh, yeah. Nowadays, we all are seeking out everything, and and of course, the internet makes that eminently possible. So, yeah, it's just that's an interesting uh, an interesting idea.
0: Well, it comes down to I think a lot of questions I have about you know, uh, people wanting everything to be personalized to them. I mean, some people like it when the ads come up on Google and they're very personalized to what you like and other people are frightened by that idea that people, <laughs> you know, track you. But it's even like I remember doing research papers in college and you had to go to the card catalog. See, I'm so old. You had to go to the card catalog. Oh, no, I, I remember the
3: card catalog very <laughs> There you well.
0: go. Get your books. And one of the things I always remember is if you could find one book – in the general subject that you were looking for that was right. If you just went to that section in the stacks, you would actually find an enormous number of other things that you didn't know you were looking for, but that were right. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. You know,
0: and that's the thing that I always feel now, like when people talk about tracking kids in education and they're like, you know, by seven years old, you sort of know whether you have a natural proclivity towards this or this and we're going to put you in this track and you're going to be a plumber and you're going to be a scientist. And I always think that leaves no room for sort of discovery, in your life at like other things that are interesting or sideways ideas and which actually sort of gets me around to art is a second career for me it's not what I originally thought I would be doing and I know mm-hmm. for you that's been something in your head about whether art is a hobby or a career or what it is in your life
2: right exactly I I guess the the fact that you know I can link everything together to you know it being connected in some way to human creativity is what is what keeps me from feeling entirely divided, you know, between my music work and my, and my art uh, pursuits. So, uh, and, and I, and I think that may be another rabbit hole that I might get dragged down into eventually is just, is just studying the, 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 the nature of human creativity itself. You know, that what, what is it about, uh, about, uh, you know, people like us that, that makes us crave, that kind of activity, whereas it, it's clear there are a lot of people out there that either just haven't discovered it or, or don't necessarily, you know, have that gene, if you want to say it that way, you know, that makes it feel makes them feel that they really want to create. You know, we we live in such a consumer culture these days. It can be uh, kind of stunning to to see the difference between, say, for example, you know, people that that you know make their own clothes or, or sew in any way, or folks that, that cook and bake and others that are perfectly happy to, to, you know, wear manufactured clothes or, you know, buy food that's been made by somebody else or, uh, you know, be entertained by something that's provided to them rather than, you know, have a way of entertaining themselves. Uh, you know, I'm not, not trying to be, I guess I should say trying not to be judgmental, but just observing the fact that You know, there's clearly something that drives folks that are uh, so motivated to uh, create for themselves.
0: I know because it isn't money.
2: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's often true but what
0: what I was also going to say is that I I actually here's the thing I think everybody is creative and wants to create in whatever way that may be and it may be that you spend you know a hundred hours decorating your house for Christmas or you throw amazing dinner parties or you dress yourself meticulously or whatever it is but I think that the biggest barrier to creativity of any kind is fear you know, it's the fear mm-hmm. of it not looking like how you think it's going to look or you feeling stupid or you have this event. And if you make it yourself, you'll look like a moron when it doesn't work kind of thing, you know. Yeah, and, and and I think it's also one of the biggest things. I mean, you're a teacher and I'm sure that besides the technical issues of what you're teaching, a lot of what you're doing is uh, I don't wanna call it spiritual, but maybe it is. It's kind of like uh, getting people's egos in the right place oh, and helping I, them feel confident.
2: I'm an unashamed cheerleader. I really feel like that's a major part of what I do is one you know, once once you can once you impart a particular uh, uh skill or a particular ability to improve on a student, it a lot of it is just standing back and cheerleading. Um, and and getting them to not be afraid and getting them to to be willing to sort of take a risk and to put it on the line and and uh, you know discover what they're capable of um oh absolutely I think that's very true I yeah, I yeah I totally relate to what you're saying about about the fear uh the the and and we're we're all haunted by you know uh, some little tiny bit of of fear Fear that behind it all we're 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 actually inadequate, you know, and or uh, uh, not up to the challenge or, or whatever. And that's uh, I, I, one of the reasons I love being a teacher is is just demonstrating to to students or or to folks that you know I'm teaching a crochet class to or to folks I'm you know demonstrating a new technique in polymer clay or something like that. Uh, just just watching those light bulbs. Turn on and watching watching people appreciate what the possibilities are that they can you know uh, take this absorb this into the into their consciousness and and use it for themselves. It's very exciting.
0: And let me, by the way, amend my statement about fear with just that I also think there is a certain level of laziness too because like I could build a table. I'm sure the skills to build a table are not beyond <laughs> me, but I don't really want to. Right. You know. <laughs> And I think that there it's that mixture, and it's that moment when you're willing to do the work. Because when I was listening to you talk about teaching, I was thinking about, you know, it's it is that you're alleviating people's fear and making them feel better, but it's also you're showing them the way and telling them the steps they need to take to work hard enough to get to where they need to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all dealt with people that that you can see them have the aha moment, and then you can just see it not go anywhere. <laughs> But, uh, I've been very fortunate. I, I, you know, I think if I had to teach that kind of student all the time, I would give it up after a while. And I've been very fortunate in my, in my musical teaching career that I've, I've just had lots of, uh, confirmation from, you know, watching my students succeed, uh, that, that I'm, you know, on the right path here. So yeah, it's very exciting. I, uh, um, You mentioned uh, Carnegie Hall being very fancy, and that actually just took place uh, back in November, just about a month ago. Um, Excuse me. Uh, I I had a former student, a former voice student of mine, who's gone on to become a pretty successful composer, lives in New York. And um, as a thank you to me, he wrote me a piece of music and, and asked me to premiere it at a concert he was giving in Carnegie Hall.
0: How magical. Uh,
2: that, it was the most amazing thing. I am so proud of this young man. Um, and uh, uh, it was just a fantastic experience. And also just listening to, to you know, uh, uh, almost two hours worth of music that he had written and, you know, realizing the, the genius that I was just a tiny little part responsible for helping him channel into his, his uh, amazing career. It was very inspiring. Very, very exciting and inspiring. So
1: can we, uh, since we're on the subject of your teaching, can you tell us, give us a peek into what it means when you teach diction for singers?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, Modern classical singers uh, need to be pretty versatile and they need to be able to uh, faithfully recreate music that's been written, you know, over the past two, three hundred years in a variety of languages. And so in order to really... Uh, hit the ground running. They all learn uh, the basics, uh, and then eventually they enhance their skills of pronouncing the languages that, that they might have to sing in. You know, uh, Italian is you know maybe the most common. Uh, you know, so much Italian opera, but they also learn uh, to sing in French and German. And so I teach uh, at at Ithaca College. I teach all the freshmen uh, that are uh, voice majors uh, that have voice as their major instrument, uh, how to understand the rules for pronouncing, uh, German, Italian, and French, uh, when they sing. So, um, uh, it's, uh, it's very exciting. I really enjoy it. Um, it's a good match for me because I'm also a, a kind of a puzzle person and a word person. I really love, uh, crossword puzzles and I love, uh, uh, will Schwartz is my hero the the guy who mm-hmm. uh, New York who, Times. Uh, yeah. the New York Times crossword and he does a, a, a weekly uh, uh, appearance on NPR uh, uh, Sunday morning and uh, I download the podcast and listen to that every week and, and really enjoy that but um, so uh, so they learn how to properly pronounce uh, these languages and there's actually an alphabet of sounds called the international phonetic alphabet Um and uh, so I work with them to help improve their pronunciation so that they can you know, be out there and somebody can hand them a piece of music that's in a foreign language and they can hopefully have the basic skill to be able to recreate that.
0: You know what's interesting? So I used to work in the theater and I did a lot of Shakespeare. And I remember going to a training seminar and the teacher said that the best cold readers, meaning have never seen the text and are able to immediately perform it, um are opera singers of Shakespeare because uh-huh, sure. they read it as a music as a musical piece and so they're able to immediately pull meaning out of it.
2: That's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, uh, I I think singers have have it, it it's not just the musical aspect. I mean, I think singers have a love often, the best singers have a love of poetry and, you know, so I could, so, I could totally see how that would be true. That, uh, that they would, you know, capture the inherent drama that's right there in the words themselves. Yeah. It's kind
0: Ooh. of a fascinating party trick actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I encourage my students to, to develop a love of poetry and to learn, t- you know, to, to recite poetry aloud, uh, it's one thing to read poetry, but it's another thing to experience it out loud. And uh, boy, it just it I, I find myself getting almost as uh, emotionally invested uh, in the poetry just by itself uh, as I do when I hear poetry that's, you know, been set to music in, in a beautiful way. I, I it's it's so awesome to me to just hear the music that's in the poetry itself. So speaking
0: of music, I know that you said that you would sing us a little something on the podcast.
2: (laughs) Sure. Um, uh, I'm going to sing you a little refrain of a, uh, uh, a folk song from the Hebrides outside the uh, islands to the west of Scotland. Um, and then I'll tell you a little story. So this is, uh, something called the, um, uh, the Eriske love lilt. Eriskay is one of the islands that's uh, off the west coast of Scotland, and this is in in um, uh, Gaelic. <STRANCHICAL> Vermeerovan, Vermeerovan, Vermeeruho, sad am I without thee.
0: That was fantastic.
2: <laughs> so, a couple of years ago, three years ago, um, I discovered that I'm Scottish. I know that may sound really insane. Uh, I was adopted as a baby, and uh, uh, I've just decided I'm I wasn't getting any younger. And if I have any hope of finding out any of that stuff that you hope you can find out about, you know, your ancestors uh health risks and all of that kind of stuff I better get off my ass and do it and so um, with the help of the internet I actually managed to find my very family wow. Um my, my uh, uh biological parents unfortunately were both deceased but I have a brother a full biological brother after my parents uh, my mom actually gave me up for adoption uh, she and my dad stayed together and had had more kids and um, uh, my father's name was McKinnon, and uh, so I found out that on my father's side, I'm Scottish. On my mother's side, I'm Irish. So the whole Irish tenor thing suddenly made a lot more sense. <laughs> yes. So, Yeah. So it's been a lot of fun to explore that and to sort of get into excited about uh, my Scottish roots. And yes, I've started wearing a kilt occasionally. Nice. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Why the heck not, you know?
0: I say if you can own it, wear it.
2: Uh, absolutely.
0: So, did you do you know? Are your biological parents musical, along with your adopted family?
2: Um, my my folks were not specifically musical, except for you know maybe strumming the guitar a little bit, and they both loved you know all the great hippie music of the '60s and '70s. And uh, but my brother, interestingly enough has become later in life a, an amazing amateur banjo player. He loves playing banjo of all styles, and um, he's just taken up the fiddle. And uh, another interesting thing that we have in common is that he trained in linguistics. And so remember that that alphabet of sounds I mentioned, the International Phonetic Alphabet? He's fluent in the IPA. Um, it's a ridiculously random thing to have in common.
3: Yes. Wow.
2: It's really pretty remarkable. So <laughs> so we could send secret messages to each other if we really wanted to.
0: <laughs> well, it's all, I'm, I'm always so interested also just in nature nurture when it comes to – because people always oh, ask yeah. me, like, who in your family is an artist? And I'm like, well – you know, I think that may be more nurture, but maybe somebody, you know, way in, in the back is, but it's like, I, I just was raised in a house that appreciated art, you know? And so I always wonder, is one dominant or not? I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah. In, in my case, certainly, it, it you know, the nurture is obvious because, you know, there was always music in the house and my, you know, father played and encouraged me. And, um, you know, as far as, as far as, you know, whether there were genes there that, you know we're bubbling up with musical talent uh I, I don't think there's no evidence well although uh um i had a younger brother also that i that i did not know and that he unfortunately died when he was in his 20s but he uh apparently was a formidable uh rock guitarist and played in bands and um so uh so he definitely had some musical talent that came from somewhere also So, yes. So, yeah, could be a little bit about.
1: I want to follow up on what you were saying. uh, You guys were discussing the nature nature nurture thing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to follow up on that and say, you know how uh, children are born with the capacity to speak any language, to hear all those sounds. And then very quickly, they their brains realize what are the sounds that are useful uh, in communicating Mm-hmm. And that people are communicating to them and they tune out the ability to even hear these other sounds. And I wonder if something similar might be going on where you you may be born with the ability uh, to do all kinds of things, music being one of them or art being one of them. And then if in your environment that isn't available or valued, you may mm-hmm. start to tune it out and not even consider it as a direction to go in unless you have a very strong drive to do that
2: yeah so, I, I I would agree with that yeah um, I, I've seen it you know from a standpoint of uh, we'll say for example uh, a, a young singer who uh, uh, doesn't have the skill to make a r- rolled R sound r- and that's an important sound in several different languages and, um, uh, you, you would always find, uh, somebody that was raised in a, in a family that, you know, spoke Italian or, 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 any, any number of other languages, you know, these children will know how to make a R sound. Um, uh, but it can be taught. It's, it's harder, but it can be taught. Um, and I think in some ways that might be true with, uh, with, with musical skills. I, I know folks that you know, had an interest in music and tried it, but then actually got actively discouraged. Uh, You know, lots of folks know of, you know, a teacher, a well-meaning teacher who, you know, had just had some little child stand in the back row and say, now don't sing, just mouth the words, you know, because the child wasn't capable of singing the, the, the proper notes or whatever. But oftentimes if you work with a person like that, they can learn how to do it. Um, And so whether it's whether it's, you know, someone who doesn't grow up around it or actually who has an interest in it and and then finds that their interest has been, you know, discouraged, actively discouraged by someone. Um, uh, The hard part then is, I think, that all those layers of of fear and self-doubt are that much stronger when you try to pick it up later in life.
0: I think this is something that we totally talk about in art education, being visual art education, all the time, which is the art teacher who said, well, you can't draw realistically, you're not an artist, you know, and then you just have Mm -hmm. great fear that that's the only way to create.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I wonder
0: also if you as a man who does
1: things like crochet and polymer clay, if you haven't broken through some kind of barrier that people assume is there, which is that men don't do
2: those things. Well, it's interesting. It's uh, I've never been really sensitive to it um, because I, frankly, don't give a darn. Uh, that was the polite version of that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> uh, and uh, But but I certainly do. Uh, it's just, it's something that comes up when I talk with other men. Um, uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful um, web community of knitters and crocheters called Ravelry. Uh, Ravelry.com is an awesome, awesome uh, resource for things like patterns and 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 how-tos and all that kind of stuff but also it's a great place for for knitters and crocheters to get together and just rap and chat about experiences and things like that and i i mean at least one group there that's all men who crochet or knit and it's a constant thing that they go to to knitting groups and and they get they get looked at askance even by some of the women who who are like well why are you here you know um uh, and you know the world of music is is uh uh that way too sometimes you know how many uh uh how many female trombonists or tuba players do you know you know that l- the low brass end of the band or the orchestra is often a re- very masculine domain even trumpets uh you know and on the other side of the coin uh how many boys do you know that take up the flute and get harassed about it you know i think those things are just so uh, absurd I, I I'd like to think that maybe as our society has changed a lot over the years that those kinds of you know very petty little little prejudices are are getting swept away gradually so um but uh, but yeah I suspect that there are some uh, areas like that that for that f- for gender concerns that that uh, either young women or young men you know aren't maybe aren't necessarily discouraged but just don't go in that direction because all of their peers are you know, going in a different direction.
0: Well, I think so we, you don't ever realize how much social pressure plays into all the decisions you make in, in your life about what to do. You know, it's like, I remember walking into a bar that was, you know, a ton of men and suddenly feeling like I so don't belong here, you know, and that's (laughs) just a place
3: hmm.
0: You know, let alone any other like a restaurant where you walk in or whatever. And I mean, I think that's why they always say, like, it's so important to see women in science. It's so important to see people of different colors, you know, doing stuff. It's so important to see it so that it normalizes it for everyone and people are not made to feel uncomfortable making certain choices.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, okay, so let's talk about the visual side of your life and how you got mm-hmm. how, how the heck you fell down that rabbit hole, because that was a really bad decision. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, you know, it's funny. I I it literally was suddenly I discovered I had some free time. And um uh so uh I, I, I literally went on a hunt for a a, a hobby. Um that was how I discovered, uh, polymer clay for the first time was, um, uh, I had a friend who was, uh, doing craft projects for a Girl Scout troop, I think. And she had, uh, just discovered polymer clay and was, was very into it. This was about 1998, I think. And, um, and I just was astounded by this amazing stuff and uh instantly became really really interested in it and uh vi- just spent all my spare time um making stuff um and um eventually it got uh, i got a little overwhelmed and i and i realized that uh it i, I wouldn't say we had i was in danger of having it take over my life but i i was finding that i had less and less actual time to devote to it and it's not a hobby that it's a, it can be pretty time intensive, um, to, uh, you know, take a project from, you know, cutting a slab off a single color of clay and, and working with a whole bunch of other colors and then getting it to, you know, whatever it was you were going to make. Um, uh, and did I mention the thing about how I'm not very patient? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Polymer clay is pretty forgiving in that regard because it it you know it's not like things have to fire overnight hallelujah you know it takes about a half an hour in the oven, um, but uh, uh, gosh uh, um, I I was going to retreats and I got involved with the national back it was at that time called the National Polymer Clay Guild NPCG I was I was a, a like a guild liaison to uh, from the from the national organization to to various loca- local guilds. Um, so I was pretty heavily invested in that. Um, and um, I think it was I think it had a lot to do with the fact that it had been such a long time since I'd actually taken an art class of any sort, because I my life had totally steered in the direction of music. And so I had Uh, even, even as a, as a high school student, I had no time in my schedule to take art classes because I was taking, uh, music classes and, um, I just didn't have room in my schedule. So, um, so I think that all that sort of built up, uh, squelched interest, I guess. I don't know. I was always interested in visual art, but just, uh, never saw myself having the time to pursue anything like that. So once I did, I kind of threw myself into it um, and eventually, uh, you know, found my way sort of si- if sidestepping from one thing to another, you know, realizing, oh, this is an aspect of this particular thing that I really like. Uh, how could I explore that in in some other way and perhaps in a way that maybe isn't quite so equipment and time intensive? So, uh, so eventually I found myself into paper arts and along the way... Uh, was reminded that my grandmother had, uh, uh, taught me how to crochet when I was very, very young. And, um, I decided to pick that back up because, um, I'm on the road a fair amount, uh, on a regular basis and having something portable, uh, to occupy my time, uh, b- became very, uh, therapeutic, you know, being able to, uh, you know, when I was, Waiting in between lessons, uh, you know, uh, I could have a crochet project on the hook and just pull it onto my bag and work on it a bit. And um,
0: And do you find, because I often have like an embroidery project with me or something else, do you find that when you're doing that in public that people want to talk to you about it?
2: Well, it's interesting. Oftentimes it does uh, uh, draw attention. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, With with crocheting, it's always the, oh, you knit? No, uh, this isn't (laughs) knitting. But you know, um, uh, and it, and oftentimes it's oh yeah, my grandmother used to did, do that or or, or whatever. Um, so uh, it, it's uh, I I love the word uh, craftivism, that wonderful made up word that you know, having people see you doing something like that, all of a sudden just awakens in them you know a sense of hey you know that that's a pretty neat thing that that even in this very mass produced society there are still people who are making things by hand and why the heck not? So, um, so I kind of like to think of myself as a little bit of a craft evangelist when I'm out there, if I'm doing it in public. So, um,
1: when I hear the word crochet, I think doilies, but I'm assuming you're not just making doilies.
2: Yeah. And in fact, I, I, I've tried that, you know, with the thread and the little itty bitty aluminum hooks. And I, I, I I, yuck. I, it it makes my, makes my eyeballs explode. Um, uh, although boy, they're really amazing to look at, to think of the amount of work that, that my, I mean, I have some that my grandmother made that are just so intricate and so amazing. And you know, they're the same little motif over and over and over and over and over again. And they're all exactly perfect. Wow. That kind of dedication is amazing to me. Um, I, I only work with yarn. Um, and Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I've I all the women and some of the men in my life all are wearing a Christmas present that I gave them, you know, a <laughs> scarf or, or something like that, a, a, a shawl or, uh, you know, the, the people I really love will get an Afghan, perhaps. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And it, it's a, it's been a great way to explore color, particularly. um. Uh, that's really been been helpful. Uh, one thing I discovered about myself that I think bridges a whole lot of things, uh, aspects of my life is I love things that are that are tiled tessellated is the fancy word, you know, things where it's a repetitive pattern that repeats. Okay. I love uh, I love stained glass windows. I love mosaic tiles. I love a, a, like a like a crocheted afghan that's the same motif over and over i find that just fascinating and i think that's one of the reasons why i love crossword puzzles because everything's in those nice orderly boxes and uh i loved geometry when i was in school um i I enjoy sudoku uh so there's something about things
0: do you have an insanely clean and neat house
2: i I wouldn't say insanely neat it's pretty tidy of course an Um, insane
1: person would never call it insane (laughs) (laughs)
2: uh no i i i do like a tidy house yeah but i have this fantasy of like like a wall in my living room that's all these gorgeous perfectly square white cube cube actually white boxes for for bookshelves that are just uh, gorgeously arranged with you know everything books and and pictures and all that stuff you know so uh, somehow i want my entire life to be tessellated um yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of cool. Even even something as simple as an oriental rug, you know, that has a, a repetitive pattern in it, it it can be astounding how much I, you can find yourself gravitating toward those things. Or at least I do. I, it's it's definitely an aspect of my personality that I notice more and more.
0: So are you a clean creator then, meaning like when you're working on something? Because I know you're getting into some more painty stuff, which tends to get a little on the messy end. Do you still manage to keep things very clean while you're working?
2: No, no. And in fact, that's been remarkably therapeutic, actually, to to, uh, cope with the spontaneity of creating. Like, you know, monoprinting, Uh, you know, I've got, you know, different colors of paint everywhere and different tools that I'm using everywhere. And, and just saying, no, I want to keep creating. I'm not going to clean up right now. I'm going to keep creating. Um, that's that's actually been very freeing for me. It's just, uh, you know, exercising a different part of my body. Do you so, have
1: a, my- a studio or do you work in the middle of where you live?
2: Um, we have sort of a downstairs rec room that is half devoted to um, the recliner and the TV and half de- devoted to my uh, sort of working area. Uh, it 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 started out I think as a quarter of the room, and it's it's since become half the room. We'll see <laughs> how much
0: longer you can maintain that balance. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. So the only downside about it is it's in the basement, but uh, but I've got some good lamps and and so, some some light that comes in down there, so that works. But uh, yeah. And do you,
0: do you work alone? Does your husband make stuff with you?
2: He does not, but he's a great appreciator. He's, he's, uh, he has a background in art history, which is, which fascinates me. And, uh, also was, was really interested in, uh, ceramics. Um, you know, he's he he knows how to throw a pot and he's got some pieces that he, you know, made when he was younger. Uh, he, he was very, very determined not to just be a theorist, he really wanted to get his hands dirty and try out all these different styles of uh, and media of of art so he painted as well um but um i think he must have gotten it all out of his system cuz now he's a wonderful appreciator of all this stuff but but um uh my, my next major project in my life is trying to find him a hobby so <laughs> <laughs> so uh. Let yeah, me just very-
1: add about the having your craft room sort of be part of another room and off in the basement. This is a process. It reminds me of how in Victorian houses, for example, the kitchen was in the basement because it wasn't considered that that needed to be seen and that the people who were working in the kitchen didn't need to be seen. And now in our modern McMansions, the kitchen is the biggest room. It's the heart of the home. And I think when you you get to the point where you can take one of the good rooms for your crafting, (laughs) then you've reached a point where you're really uh, uh, valuing what you do.
2: Yeah, it's something that we're thinking about, you know, when we move on, Uh, that, uh, that, you know, I want to have a, a space that's on the main level. That's, that's as bright, as bright with windows and light as the rest of, as everything else. You know, it's just the, the circumstances with the house we live in right now. It's really the only place I can spread out like that is in the rec room downstairs. So, and it's, it's nice. It's finished. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's a pleasant place to be. It's not like, uh, you know, like I have to beat back the cobwebs to get to my desk. So,
0: (laughs) Well, it's like I always say. So I live in a—I always say I live in a small apartment with a big art studio. Because the truth is, the biggest room in my apartment, the master bedroom, I turned into my art studio, and the little tiny guest bedroom, which really just fits the bed, I say it's the largest walk-in closet on earth. (laughs) Um, You know, because what else do I need to do in there? But I do think that there is something about like the environment that you live in, and sort of you know what you're sort of value and interested in. And I think that's part of the reason that craft rooms tend to roll and take over because it's like, once you get a taste of having that dedicated space, you're not giving it up.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, it's true. And just, uh, um, you know, there's uh, as, as much of an art to figuring out how to get the right things within arm's reach, you know, as there is to actually using those things. it's, (laughs) (laughs) planning and strategizing how my workspace is going to look, uh, can take up as much time as creating a piece of art. It's crazy. (laughs) Oh my
0: gosh. I've always said there's several hobbies. There's the making, there's the shopping and there's the organizing. Uh, And those are three different hobbies.
2: Yeah. And Oh my God, the browsing online of what Uh other people are doing. I, I just think that's, uh, the, 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 as, as much of a time suck as the internet can be for, for, for us who, who, uh, love to go there um oh my goodness uh pinterest uh wow what a great invention that is and uh just being able to see what the possibilities are with the tools you're using and what other people are doing with it it's it's fantastic
1: Art is that awesome. how you found is that how you found balls or designs
2: just browsing? Uh, I think so. I think originally yes i think it was uh, you know noticing uh, projects that other folks were making with your products julie and uh uh, so I have a I have a Pinterest board that's all devoted to stencils. Uh, good and man. You're, good man. You're are <laughs> heavily represented there, so uh, as well as in my stencil box. So,
0: so let's talk about your favorite tools then. So obviously you like stencils. Uh-huh. What else are you obsessed with?
2: I do. Lately, I'm obsessed with uh with well the jelly plate. Oh is, my it, god. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. You know, I I I, I it was. It's as if the thing was made for me because I was interested in one time in silt screening, but there again, there's something that's very time intensive, very equipment intensive and um, you know I was uh, just it just uh, that was just not gonna work for me. Um, but the jelly plate just makes it so easy and uh, you know e- easy clean up or don't clean it up. you know it's so flexible uh, and versatile. it's amazing. Um, and, uh, lately I've been using a lot, the catalyst wedges, um, they're, uh, these Oh, they're, they're spectacular. And, um, uh, I've been working with like, uh, you know, once I, uh, get some paint on the, on the plate and do some, some swishing around with the, the wedges, um, taking a print and then. Uh, before I even take a ghost print I'll put some more paint on and use the wedges in another direction and then instantly I'm getting these incredibly complex multi-layered um, uh, prints without having to reprint on the same print you know I'm able to get something that's that's really looking multi-layered with just one pass which is very exciting uh, I, lo- I love I love the the, the the sort of the synchronicity the 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 uh, the, the, the mystery of, of, of what you're going to get, uh, I'm still discovering and, and, uh, you know, still figuring out, well, okay, what order am I going to use these colors in order to get uh, this particular result and that kind of thing. But, um, uh, that's been, that's been a uh, one thing that I've been doing a lot lately. Um, oh gosh. Um, anything that I can make a mask out of is uh pretty great. Um,
0: so this enhances um, your inability to throw anything away, which I know we talked about before, because that's really – it has killed me. My space is full of garbage.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I have the world's largest stack of uh, uh, bubble wrap and other packing materials that, that I'm thinking someday I'm going to use these to you know, to do something with. Are they going to create some sort of a fabulous texture or whatever? Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I, I, and I think how responsible, you know, we're being so good to the environment by not throwing all these things in the landfill. Exactly. Uh, you making
0: know. beautiful art out of it.
2: <laughs> That's my excuse <laughs> for eating all this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: So I know that you've had some, we had some little back and forth on email where you were talking about the fact that sometimes you always wonder, like, what if you made visual art more of your focus rather than the singing?
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Is
0: that one of those things that you think about often or is it like an occasional fleeting thought?
2: Well, today it's definitely an occasional fleeting thought because uh, I got to say yesterday was a, a, a exciting day. Um, one of the groups that I conduct is a is a, a, a pretty elite 20 voice s- select. Uh, I call them semi pro because they're all professionally trained, but they all have day jobs. Uh, and they just I'm fortunate enough to be able to get them together to perform to sing and and rehearse every week and to perform a few times a year. but they uh, performed uh, Handel's Messiah with uh, our our local um, uh, professional chamber orchestra. So uh, that was incredibly exciting and gratifying and and I also got to be the tenor soloist for the performance, which was very exciting. Mm. So today's a day when I'm really feeling like how could I possibly possibly give this up or how could I possibly let this go to the back seat, you know, in favor of something else. I don't know. I I I think it, it, we we all get frustrated with uh not having enough time to do the things we want to do. Um and so I think I think that is what feeds that for me is is, you know, when I'm when uh, when I'm in the in the deep dungeon of the late middle of the semester and, uh, you know, I've got assignments to grade and, uh, lessons to make up and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, too many rehearsals all week long. And I haven't had a time to spend in my studio. I think myself, uh, you know, maybe I'd like to figure out a way to ferret out more time for this. And then there are times when, uh, you know, like right now I had a wonderful peak performance yesterday and Uh, All I have to do between now and the end of the teaching semester is grade my final exams, and then I have a very, very good chunk of uninterrupted playtime until the semester starts up again in January, and then I'll start complaining again.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll just tell you the saddest thing, which is I make a lot less art now that it's a job than I ever did when it was a hobby.
2: Oh, no kidding. Because, yeah. you
0: know, it's one of those things where the business end of things takes up so much oh, time, you know, uh, whether it's answering email or dealing with your website uh-huh. or, you know what I mean? Hustle, hustle, hustle.
2: yeah. It's always yeah. that way, I think. It's true. It's true.
0: Anyway, um, not to end, to end on a depressing note, but we haven't talked for a while, so we should probably wrap up. Mom, is there anything else <laughs> that you would like to ask or comment on?
1: I just wanted to comment on the following, which is – Often I find, maybe this is just me, I think, oh, certain kinds of people do art and certain other kinds of people don't. And then you always find out that people are not stereotypical and that the more you get to know them and talk to them and see their lives, you realize everybody has all these things, all these parts. Yesterday I was watching coverage of an interview with a football player. And he was talking all about the football, and then it turns out he's also a painter. And no
2: kidding, it Mm.
1: surprised me at first, and then I realized that it's really I am the problem here, because why, why couldn't that be true?
2: Exactly. Why are Why are we surprised to find out that Rosie Greer knits? You know, right. Uh, To To use an ancient ancient reference in that regard, (laughs) Um, yeah, it's true. And wouldn't the Wouldn't the world be a more amazing place if we weren't so quick to just, you know, make those kinds of assumptions right, about
1: pigeonhole people and say, yeah. if you are this, then you must also be this and not that. Yeah.
0: Well, mm-hmm. also it reminds me of like, when you're talking about making reeds for the oboe, there are plenty of people who are crafters and don't consider it craft, like fishermen who make their own flies. Those sure. flies are beautiful. And in fact, many of them have actually gone on to become jewelry artists because people have been so attracted to the gorgeous flies Absolute, that they're making. You abs- know? A lot of,
2: a lot of uh, men that I know that work in polymer clay, mm-hmm had a background of doing those kinds of things. Yeah. Or woodworking, yeah. you know, and have carried those skills over into polymer clay, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's true. It's true. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be, uh, pleasantly surprised when you find somebody who does something that's just astoundingly gorgeous and, and amazing. And you had no idea and you're right. You're totally right. It's, it's our problem, not theirs. You know, it's, it's our problem that we, you know, aren't open to, you know, the 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 sensitive uh, artistic side that everybody's got, you know, hidden in there somewhere. Well,
0: it goes back to our earlier <laughs> conversation too about how I think everybody wants to be creative, but it's just fear that keeps mm-hmm. you back from doing it. But we all find ways in which to express some kind of creativity, I think.
2: Yeah, that's important to remember.
0: So anyway, as we wrap up, Carl, uh, where can people find you online? I know you have a very extensive music site.
2: I do. I have a website uh, www.carljoehenjin.com, and that just talks about my, you know, career as a singer. Um, I've uh, got links to uh, my uh, SoundCloud page. SoundCloud's a wonderful spot where you can upload uh, audio, so if folks are interested in hearing me there. Um, you can look for me in SoundCloud, um, and uh, you can take a look at um, samples of some of my compositions and things like that. So, yeah.
0: Very cool. And mom, nobody can ever find you online because you like to hide. Exactly. <laughs> so you can find pictures, embarrassing pictures of her on my blog. Uh, and you can find both of us at ballserdesigns.typepad And do leave us your comments or questions at designs.com backslash arting A-R-T-I-N-G. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast, all one word. And uh we're gonna sing you out of here with a recording of Carl singing. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you the next time on the 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 Adventures in Arting podcast.